I welcome you to Fellowship Bible Church this morning. Glad that you are here and that we can fellowship together. Our scripture reading this morning is found in Ezekiel once again. And I understand that you read in Ezekiel 46 last week while we were gone. So we continue on then with the 47th chapter. We're nearing the very end of the book here. And this is a really encouraging portion. I want to remind you something that I was reviewing last night uh, in chapter 43. Why the description of all these glorious things that are going to come. And it says in 43.10, Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangements, sorry, its arrangements, singular, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances, all its forms and all its laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may keep its whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. Obviously, they couldn't perform them until it was built like this and set up, and they will do that in time to come. But I bring that up to say that we see these marvelous things about the temple and its ordinances, its sacrifices, the prince coming and going, and the gates and all of the design of it, to remind the nation of Israel of the blessings that they earlier had forfeited and that they should be ashamed that they missed out on these things at that time. But yet God will restore them to a place of prominence and of blessing. And uh, good to see you back there, Christina. (laughs) That's great. Uh, Forgive me if I do that from time to time, will you? Yes. Yes, it's good to see all of you. Chapter 47, getting back to our reading here. Listen to this. This this is the river. Uh, we have a song about this, don't we? Somebody come up with the title and, and name of that song uh, later. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the front of the temple faced east, and the water was flowing from under the right side of the temple south of the altar. Now, if you go home today and you have water flowing out of your front door, you probably have a problem. Here, this is a blessing, okay? Verse 2, He brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits, and he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. And again, he measured 1,000 cubits again, and he brought me through. The water came up to my waist. And he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not cross. For the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned there, along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley, and enters the sea. What sea would that be? Anybody have an idea? The sea to the east of Jerusalem. 
It's called the Dead Sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. Nothing grows there, nothing. It's too salty. It's not good. And it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there, for they will be healed, and everything will live wherever the river goes. It is indeed a healing stream. Recognize it now? Like a river. Glorious. It shall be that fishermen will stand by it from Engedi to Enigliam. They will be uh, there will be I'm sorry, they will be places for spreading their nets, their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. So that's the Mediterranean. But its swamps and its marshes will not be healed, for they will be given over to salt. Along the bank of the river on this side and and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. This is like a preview of the eternal state. We're talking about the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. This will be a preview of that, which will merge into that eternal state. Notice that we will keep time in the millennial kingdom. After all, it's said to be a thousand years long, but it says here that they will bear fruit every month. That is also said of the tree of life in Revelation 21 and 2, which also bears a different fruit every month. So there's some notion of time passage there. Verse 13, Thus says the Lord God, These are the borders by which you shall divide the land as an inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions. You shall inherit it equally with one another, for I raised my hand in an oath to give it to your fathers, and this land shall fall to you as your inheritance." This shall be the border of the land on the north, from the great sea, by the road to Hethlon, as one goes to Zedad, Hemath, Barothath, Sibriam, which is between the border of Damascus and the border of Hamath, to Hazar Hatakon, which is on the border of Hauran. Thus the boundary shall be from the sea to Hazar Enon, the border of Damascus, and as far as the north, northward. It is the border of Hamath. This is the north side. On the east side, you shall mark out the border between, uh, from between Hauran and Damascus and between Gilead and the land of Israel along the Jordan, along the eastern side of the sea. This is the east side. The south side toward the south shall be from Timar uh, to the waters of Meribah by Kadesh, along the brook to the great sea. This is the south side toward the south. The west side shall be the great sea from the southern boundary until one comes to a point opposite Hamath. This is the west side. Thus you shall divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. It shall be that you will divide it by lot as an inheritance for yourselves and for the strangers who dwell among you and who bear children among you. They shall be to you as native born among the children of Israel. They shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. Now, isn't that interesting? Native born children, or I should how can I say that? children born in the land that will have the native status. And it shall be that whatever tribe the stranger dwells, in whatever tribe the stranger dwells, there you shall give him his inheritance, says the Lord God. Wow, that's interesting, isn't it? Yes, indeed. Um, We're not starting a new series today. As you know, excuse me, we finished 
uh, we finished the series in Jonah, and uh, Nahum has uh, still got a couple chapters to go on that. Just to kind of close that loop, but I haven't decided yet what my next series will be. I'm leaning towards getting back to a New Testament book and study like we normally do. So today's a little bit different uh, in that I'll be speaking on a topic that has been on my mind the last <clears throat> few weeks. And that is, if I could give it a title, Clarity on the Gospel. Clarity on the Gospel. I was uh, alerted to this and, and kind, of, kind of induced to think on the topic by an email that was sent to me from a, a Christian media uh, source, a publication house, if you will. And um, so I, I began to think about it, and I have some quotes from that email here, but I expand on it quite a bit, and it's a deep concern to me. The point of the, of the email and of my thinking on it was to alert us to a very serious problem. Churches do not win people to Christ or grow as God has designed, I believe. One, there are many people give many reasons for this, but one reason may be that we are not really that clear on what the gospel is. Now, you think you are clear on the gospel, but maybe after today you'll be even more clear on the gospel of Christ. And so, therefore, if we are not clear on the gospel, we're not presenting the genuine article which carries with it the power of God unto salvation. If you don't present the real thing, you don't have the real power. If we have a form or a fashion of the gospel, but not the genuine article, then we do not have the power of God, and we cannot expect much to occur. Now, to come right to the point, the article, the email that I received said, this is the gospel. Now, I'm going to give a little alteration to the statement that he gives here, but just listen to this. It says, Jesus, who died on the cross for sins, rose again. And I think we're okay up to that point. We've got it, okay? But he rose again as the Lord and Christ of the world and now offers forgiveness and salvation and eternal life to all those who repent and submit to his rule in faith. That has a number of important elements to it. Now, when I ended with those who repent and submit to his rule and faith, I wanted to give a little critique of that because I think there is a, a problem there that I'd like to address directly. But before I do that, I just want to mention again, Jesus died on the cross for sins, rose again. That's 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-four, right? I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that proves he died, uh, he rose again, and then it says, and he was seen by, and then it goes through the list of witnesses. He rose again according to the scriptures. But if we stop there, we stop too early, and I'll, I'll expand on that as we go through. He arose as the Lord and Christ of the world. When Paul went to new places in the book of Acts, he would reason from the scriptures with them and persuade them that the Christ of the Old Testament is Jesus of the New Testament. We have a, you know, he says we have clear prophecies of what this man was to come and do. We see a man who came and did those things. Equal sign, these two are equal. This is the Christ. 
And I'll tell you a little bit about what that means in just a moment. And then, of course, he now offers forgiveness and salvation and eternal life to all who believe. But he puts it here in this letter as to those who repent and submit to his rule and faith. Now, the submit language used by them is, is not incorrect in terms of a disposition of faith toward the Lord and toward God, but it's not clear enough because it omits a very important idea. The Bible does not use the submit terminology when it talks about how do you come into a relationship with God, favoring rather the terminology to believe or to exercise faith. You with me so far? Like in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, where it says what? You have it memorized. It's by grace through faith that you're saved, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Rear's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has ordained beforehand that we should do them or prepared beforehand for us to do them. Or, or Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 25, and that passage, although maybe not so well known to all of us, perhaps should be so well known to all of us because it's, it's kind of the pinnacle of Paul's gospel presentation in the book of Romans where it says, Speaking of Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation or satisfaction by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Anybody who says, hey, God overlooked all these sins in the past, what did he do about those? They just had to be patient and wait. God showed what he did about those in sending his son to the cross so that God could be at one and the same time just to punish sins that need punishment, they all do, and yet justify those who believe in Jesus who don't deserve justification but receive it because of faith in in his work. Scripture does use the word submit, but only in two particular verses that could be related to initial salvation, at least that I found. One is in Romans 10.3, since we're in Romans, just turn a couple pages over. In Romans 10.3, it says of the Jewish people, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And that is an important, important concept. What it's saying is they're standing there saying, we are good with God. We are God's offspring. No, you're not. You need to submit yourself to his righteousness instead of trying to earn up your own righteousness uh, before him. They had a certain zeal, but not one based on sound scriptural knowledge. The other text is James 4, 7, which exhorts Christians to submit to God. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, I think you would, you probably, you know, in your experience of sharing the gospel or hearing the gospel, probably haven't heard this verse to be used in a context of, okay, you need to submit to God and you'll be saved. We don't say it like that because of this important concept of faith and trust in God. So I don't think that James 4, 7 here is a clear salvation verse, but it does express the Christian's mindset throughout his or her life. If you're here and saying, phew, I'm glad pastor said that's not a salvation verse. I don't have to worry about that one. No, I didn't say that. 
It's not the way that the scripture emphasizes the, about the obtaining of salvation. But if you're a Christian, you better be submitted to God. Absolutely. There's no question about that. Those who repent and trust in Christ by grace through faith will be submissive to God in their new nature. Carrying out submission beforehand, before salvation, in any comprehensive manner is impossible. You cannot do that because the old nature does not want to do that. Furthermore, mere slavish submission is not the obtaining cause of salvation. Now, in another system of theology, the, uh, the Muslims, Islamic theology, believes that submission is the key attribute that somebody exercises to get into a, a right connection. I hesitate to call it a relationship. It's not a relationship there, but in a right connection with their God. But trust encompasses the notions of love and personal relationship that mere submission does not. Instead of submission as an obtaining cause of salvation, we teach that those who genuinely trust Christ will submit to him as a natural outflow of their faith. You understand how I'm making a distinction there? You don't have to get your life all in line first, and then God accepts you, okay? We don't believe in a... uh, Can I say it this way? This is a strange way to say it, but if you're theologically thinking... We don't believe in post-millennial salvation. Now, I got one guy back there that knows what I'm talking about. Post-millennialism says humans are going to get the world all straightened out, and then God's going to show up. Premillennialism says people have got the world all messed up. Christ is going to show up, and he's going to straighten it out. Christ has got to show up in your life to straighten you out before you're going to get all lined up with God. So we don't have a post-millennial salvation. We have a premillennial Don't take that too far, okay? That's kind of a crazy way to say it, but hopefully it's a good illustration. Submission. The ongoing life of faith is indeed a life of repentance and submission to the Lordship of Christ. The ongoing life of faith is actually one of following Jesus. It entails being his disciple. Following and being a disciple are not option packages on Christianity. Some of you have been, you know, concerned about ordering cars. And you go to the dealer, and it's going to be, you know, 3,000 months before the car arrives. And, but you have plenty of time. It's a great thing because you can option up the car, and you can put everything you want on it. It'll come just like you want it, the right color, the right, you know, LT, LTZ, LTS, whatever package you have. And, and you're all happy. You know, the, the dealer makes that a, a thing, you know, a feature. Waiting is a feature now. Uh, but... Uh, Discipleship and following and lordship are not option packages to add on to Christianity like, you know, well, I I don't want the option packages. I just want four wheels and a steering wheel, you know, uh, and I can just kind of go. No, these are basic built-in parts of what Christianity is all about. Um, That package starts with genuine faith, a faith which turns from self and sin to God and it turns to God and, and his righteousness and is centered in Jesus. So it is abandoning ourself and focusing upon God. With all of that, I'm trying to say that submission, although it's not the best way to say this is how we procure salvation, it's definitely there's a kind of submission involved in the initial reception of the gospel. The sinner has to put himself under God's word and authority in the sense that he abandons his own self-made theology. You know, I'm a good person. People say, 
And then they run into the Bible, which says, you're not a good person. And so they have to decide, am I the boss or is God the boss? The person is told that he's a sinner, and unless he repents, he will perish. He can decide to believe and thus submit to God's word as the authority, demonstrating proper humility and recognizing that God is in charge. He does this by believing in him. You know, you kind of, belief is a kind of submission. You know what I'm saying? Faith. But disbelief is a kind of rejection. Or this fellow can rebel and continue down his own path, only later to run squarely into that authority down the road when he faces Jesus as the judge. You're going to face it at some point, either now or later. In this sense, faith is correctly described as a submissive kind of faith in a similar fashion as faith is described by the word repentance. So what I would prefer to do is say to somebody, look, salvation comes by faith alone. What is faith? Well, as I'll say in a minute, it's not just knowledge. It's a submissive kind of faith. It's a repentant kind of faith. It's a believing thing in God and in in Christ. To highlight submission without mentioning faith is not as accurate to biblical teaching as it should be. Now, returning to that email, I'm not trying to trash what I got. It was very useful and helpful to me. But it says this, The gospel is that the crucified Jesus has been raised by God and thus proven and declared to be the Christ, God's promised worldwide ruler and judge in the line of David, whom death could not defeat and who will reign over God's kingdom. You see, when we preach the gospel and we say, Jesus died for your sins and rose again, believe in him, we've missed some things. Why believe in him? He's coming as your judge. He's coming as king of the world, and if you don't get lined up with him right now, you're going to have problems later on. Just like any subject in any kingdom, if he's rebelling against the king, it's not going to go well for him. You know, we don't We rebel against our leaders all the time because we've been taught anti-authoritarianism and we're a democracy and we can say what we want to say and all that. That's not how most people in the world have existed. You rebel against authority and you talk against them and you undermine them and all that, it's off with your head, just how it is. Well, we have to get lined up with God the right way. Uh, So what he's saying is a a good statement. Acts 17.30, God commands all men everywhere now to repent. He's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has appointed. And Romans 1, 3, and 4, since I'm in Romans, seems to be a common theme here this morning. Romans 1, 3, and 4. Paul is preaching the gospel concerning what? His son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. This is the Jesus whom we preach as part of the gospel. The word gospel is used 94 times in the New King James Version of the New Testament, slightly less in the Net Bible or ESV. I'll let you check that out. The first use is in Matthew 4.23. Jesus, the Bible says, was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. In short, that message was that Jesus had come to be king and that we must repent and believe in him to see the kingdom. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom 
of God. But God sent his son into the world to save the world, didn't he? And whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The last use of the word gospel is in Revelation 14.6, which talks about an angel flying in mid-heaven proclaiming the everlasting gospel. And his message is in the next verse, Romans 14, or Revelation 14.7 rather, that the inhabitants of the earth, earth must fear God, must give him glory because the hour of judgment has come, and they must worship him who made all things. That's the gospel. Now, we don't know that verse as well as we know 1 Corinthians 15, which I quoted earlier, but that's what it is. Somehow all of these things must fit together. 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 14, Rome, or, uh, Matthew 4.23 about repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The whole thing, they all must somehow be connected. God doesn't have contradictions in his mind. He's not giving us three different gospels. All of this ties the individual gospel with the kingdom gospel, which are not separate gospels at all. Rather, individual salvation is part of the kingdom and cosmic plan of our Lord. You can see that. I mean, look in Romans 8, for instance. In Romans 8, 19 to 22, Paul talks about the groaning of creation. All of creation groans awaiting for the redemption of the sons of God. And, and when we are redeemed, the creation will be released from its bondage to suffering. God is working that in the gospel. The gospel is far more than just individual salvation. It is a restoration of all of creation, a restoration of the society, a restoration of religious practice, of justice, of uh, of the sin-cursedness of this world, that will all be fixed as part of the gospel of Christ. The gospel then is not merely Jesus crucified, I quote from that letter that I received, not merely Jesus crucified. You know, you might think, well, that sounds good, Jesus crucified. No, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why do I emphasize the word Christ? The one who is crucified has now risen as God's worldwide king and judge. He now calls on everyone in the world to turn back to him in repentance and receive forgiveness of sins on the basis of his atoning death. He's call- one of the reasons I'm doing this this morning is to make sure that everybody in this room is clear on the gospel. If you're saved, you need to be clear on the gospel. If you're not saved, you really need to be clear on the gospel. Okay, So you're hearing these words and you're hearing that God is calling us to believe in him to turn in repentance and receive forgiveness of sins on the basis of his cross work on that awful instrument of death. The point of ensuring that Christ is in our gospel message, that word, is that Jesus is God's appointed judge and ruler of the world. You see, we take in evangelicalism too often the gospel is Jesus is Savior. That's wonderful. That's true. But he's more than Savior. You need a Savior because he's Lord, he's King, he's Judge, he's Creator. That's why you need a Savior. Okay. Um, Christ means anointed, right? Mashiach. But anointed for what? You know, if you say, I'm smart, I know Christ means anointed. Well, that's great. Anointed for what? Appointed to what end? He was chosen or anointed by the Father to rule the world. 
He is the second, the first Adam failed in his kingdom responsibilities. God said to Adam and Eve, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle of the earth, over every living thing. They're under your charge, Adam. And he went ahead and he blew it. And we've been blowing it ever since. We have some still of that remnant of of the dominion mandate, and we still have charge over God's creation, but we've flopped. Jesus will come, and he will perfectly execute the Father's plan of this dominion over the earth. He is the Christ. It refers to the, the, not just as a title or a name, but it's the person of Jesus and his function in the world, especially in the future. Christ implies Jesus had to be resurrected if he's He didn't just die for sins, but if he's to be the Christ, the ruler of the world, guess what? He had to be raised again from the dead. And, in fact, he was as king and second Adam. He was not chosen merely to die for sinners, but he was chosen to die and rise and rule and judge. Our evangelical tendency is to think that the reason we want to believe is so that we can go to heaven instead of hell. That's not the whole truth, however. The reason you want to be right with Christ and God is that Jesus will be king over the whole world. He will be your judge, and you love him with all your heart, and you want to serve him faithfully, and you want to stop sinning. The only way to achieve that kind of acceptance into his kingdom is entrust yourself to him. The only way to receive his forgiveness from sins that you have done against him is to repent and turn to him in faith. Marvelous thing is the king has promised, if you come to me in faith, I will graciously forgive your sins because I paid for them. But you cannot receive that gift while you're in a mode of rebellion and pride and self-autonomy. If you trust Christ, you are deciding to abandon sin and self and riches and to switch loyalties from the world and the flesh, maybe the devil, to him, Christ. So we have both Savior and Lordship aspects here. Jesus saves you, but not to live as you please. We know that, don't we? He saves us so that we can experience the greatest good which is to live for him. He saves you to deliver you from the present evil world. It's not, as we say, just fire insurance. He came to redeem you and to win you back from the present evil age. So it's not enough to say that the gospel encompasses individual salvation, that is a rescue of a certain number of individuals from the devastating consequences of sin. This is because the gospel of Jesus includes more than that. It includes payment for sin. It includes transformation of individuals from sinners to saints. Most of you here make a profession of faith. That being the case, God's work in you now is to continue to transform you from the sinner that you have been to the saint that you're supposed to be. He's called you to be saints. He is working to transform you, to change your short temper, to make you more patient, to make you more loving, 
to make you more kind, to make you more concerned about the souls of men and women, to make you more prayerful, to make you more interested in his word. That's what God is doing. But he's also working a worldwide kingdom in which God's people will reign with Christ in the future. It includes the judgment by Christ of all mankind. This gospel is more than individual salvation. And it includes the eternal state, which includes the restoration of the world to pre-fall and probably better than pre-fall conditions. The email that I received is raising these issues to deal with a serious shortcoming of many gospel presentations, and that is that those presentations are truncated. They preach that Jesus died for your sins and rose again from the dead. The fact that he was buried and that he was seen by witnesses prove those facts. We've got that. And that's definitely part of the gospel. But there's more than those historical events. Now, you might object and say, look, Pastor, Paul said, this is the gospel that I received. Christ died for your sins, uh, was buried, rose again, was seen by witnesses. That's the gospel. That's it. My contention is that Paul explains those things not to say that that's all you have to believe. He's going to say to the Corinthian people that the person who did those things, indeed, you must believe, But that's the one you are to believe in, and that person has done and will do more things than that. He did not only die and rise again, but he also has been declared the Son of God with power. He will reign over the earth as King of kings. He offers you to be a citizen of his kingdom, which requires forgiveness and rebirth. If you abandon your own devices and trust in him, In Christianity, you recognize the Lord is the creator of all things. He's the king over all things. His loving sacrifice, you recognize that also for the creation. You recognize his ultimate rule over all things and his role as judge of living and the dead when he returns. You might object. Well, why isn't there a passage of Scripture that explains the gospel concisely then? Well, for one, Paul does explain the gospel in the book of Romans. Our tendency is to try, okay, give me the boiled down shortest version. No, go to the Gospel of Romans. I know it's not called that, but I called it that because you get the point. Because that's what the Gospel, that's what Romans is. It deals with almost all of the Christian message and its implications having to do with Jews and Gentiles, how God's sovereignty fits in, sanctification, and so on and so forth. Second, there's not one small section of the Bible that explains Christianity in a nutshell, because Christianity is an entire world view. You with me? You can't boil down the ways of God into two sentences. It's a way of looking at the world that is entirely different than what we naturally think and see in our flesh. Therefore, it takes the Bible to explain the gospel, not just a little pamphlet or a two-page tract. Okay? Now, there's another issue that the email I received doesn't deal with and I think is critical in our clarity of the gospel here and understanding clearly the gospel. Extremely important. Christian belief is trust in a person. The person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, you might say, well, that's obvious, but it's not as much as you might think. 
obvious. I give in my notes, which you'll have access to uh, in the near future, a number of texts that tell us when you believe, you are to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, in and on his person. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness. It's not mere belief in certain facts about the person, although that is how many evangelicals in recent history have portrayed Christian faith. In that case, Christianity becomes nothing more than assent to information or knowledge about a few key historical events. Christ died and Christ rose again. On the contrary, biblical faith is trust in Jesus, something like you would trust your spouse more than that, something like a child would trust their parents more than that, something like you would trust your surgeon to not kill you when you're laying on the operating table and he's cutting and slicing and dicing and hopefully sewing back up together the right way while you're asleep and can do nothing about it. More than that kind of trust. When things are tough, the child looks to his parents and the parents say, trust me, this is the right thing to do. Christ is not only Savior, he's also Creator, Son of God, Judge, King, and Lord. This is the one God calls us via the gospel to trust. Informational belief is what the demons possess. Remember that verse, James 2.19? Informational belief is different than personal trust. Personal trust is what true Christians possess and is what we mean when we say that a person is saved by faith. Justification is indeed by faith alone, but it is that kind of repent, repentant faith and in the person of Christ faith that we have just discussed. It's not justification by faith equals belief in certain facts. It's justification by faith in the person of Jesus kind of faith. Now, what I, when I say personal trust, I do not mean that you personally as an individual do something. That's needful. You must as a person trust the Lord. And what I mean, what I'm, the distinction I'm trying to make is there's this kind of idea that, well, you know, our family is Christian. Or I gather with a bunch of people that call themselves Christians, and there's kind of a corporate um, mentality to that trust, that faith. It doesn't come down to the individual level. So that's why when we preach the gospel, we've often emphasized this has got to be a personal decision on your part, a personal thing. But when, I, when I'm talking this morning about personal, the faith is personal, the trust is personal. What I mean is that the trust is in a person. So really, when we talk about personal faith, I'd like to have you think of two things. The one thing you've often thought of in the past. I myself as a person need to trust. But on the other side, you need to think of what you're trusting in. You as a person are personally trusting in a person. That's the kind of personal that I'm emphasizing this morning. 
It's not informational. It's not data. It's not I read the history books and I understand what's in there. It's that you're entrusting yourself in the sense of trusting in another person, not just that you yourself as a person trust something, but you are entering into a relationship of trust with a person. It's a relational trust in the divine person. So that, for example, from this morning, if you come to a very hard doctrine, you can say to yourself, I don't understand all of that. But I trust in the person of God in Christ that he, as the judge of the earth, shall always do right. I don't understand how that works with that. I don't understand why he let Satan trouble Job. I don't understand why he lets a young person die of cancer. I don't understand the doctrine of fill in the blank. But I trust in the person of God and he is my stay. He is my confidence in the person of Christ. If you trust in him that way, you will be saved. The power of God unto salvation is in Christ himself. So if we proclaim a truncated message, a truncated Christ, there's going to be truncated power. We can't have that. Because sinners need the full power of God to bring them out of the darkness and into the light. Christ and his work is what makes the message powerful. So let me summarize as we close what I'm saying. The gospel is that Jesus is the Son of God, the agent of creation, who died for sinners, who rose again from the dead. He is the Lord and Christ of the world, and as such, with that authority, offers forgiveness and salvation and eternal life to all those who repent and trust in him. I mean, when he said in Matthew 28, 19, or 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That includes the authority to say, if you believe in me, I will save you. Where do you get that kind of power? Well, he has it inherently. He had, and he authorizes us to share that with others. We can introduce people to this Jesus, this Savior, who died for sinners, rose again from the dead, is coming judge, coming king, Lord and Christ of the world. And we can say, if you believe in him, if you personally put your trust in this person, you will be saved. Your sins will be washed away. Jesus is going to be the judge of all mankind. And I might add, you need to be ready. He's going to be the king of the world, and you need to be ready. We must, hat tip to that Revelation passage, fear God and worship him. If you do not, then you will be lost and outside of his kingdom forever. And we're emphasizing also this morning that this gospel has not to do with informational belief of certain facts, but person-to-person trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, have I introduced him to you this morning so that you remember, remember the one in whom you trust or maybe you haven't trusted in him and today would be the day that you would say, I need that. I need that power. I need the whole gospel, not just the facts that I learned in my you know, second grade Sunday school class. I need to know him. I need to personally put my faith into him and thus know that he will take me all the way through the rest of my life, transform me, give me hope, help me to live godly, 
and then take me to heaven when my life is done. That's the appeal. If we're not clear on the gospel, look, you can forget any other debates. You can forget politics. You can forget Bible, all your Bible studies and all that stuff. If you don't know him, you don't know nothing. Okay? Let's make sure that we do have that clarity of the gospel. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, oh God, I pray. I don't know exactly, Lord, why you caused that email to cross my desk this last uh, two weeks ago now and then caused me to be meditating on it and thinking about it and expanding on it like this this morning and sharing this message, which is a little unusual for the kind of style of messages that we do in our expositional series. But Lord, you're, I trust that you are doing something with it this morning. Amongst the number of those people who have heard the message here or online or by the recording later on, and that it will help us to experience the uncut power of the living God in salvation. Lord, we have such a hope. We have such power. We have such opportunity at our fingertips in the gospel. The power to be forgiven and to live a righteous life, it's out of this world. And Lord, I pray that we will apprehend that for which you have laid out this message in the Scripture and desire to apprehend us. May we believe in Christ, the Son of the living God. Thank you for his cross work on our behalf. Thank you that he has been established as the Son of God in power. Thank you that he's coming again. Oh, thank you that he is to be judged to right all the wrongs and king to rule over a perfect society. Help us to long to participate in those future things, even as we live now in the present things that you have for us. Please work in the hearts of your people here today. In Jesus' name, amen.